Well, good morning, church. Yeah, my name is Darren, and I'm one of the pastors here at Forefront. Um, I am not a full-time pastor because I'm a full-time student at Denver Seminary training to do this every Sunday, hopefully at some point in my life. So thank you uh, for giving me an opportunity to teach and preach with you today. Um, yes, I have a whiteboard. Yes, I will be using it because I'm a teacher at heart, and I like, I'm not a good artist, but I'm going to draw something anyway. But anyway, before we get started, um, I would like to take some time and just allow some silence in this room and allow for us to center ourselves and um, ask God to open our, our eyes and ears to what he would have for us this morning. So take a moment and just pray to God, ask him to do that for you, um, and then we'll continue. So let's pray and just talk to God on our, on our own. Father, in the hustle and bustle of life, it's wonderful just to take a moment and for a room filled with people just to be silent and to listen to you and to talk to you in our own souls. God, again, I just repeat the prayer that we each pray, prayed individually that you would open our eyes, that you would talk to us this morning. Um, <clears throat> of course, every Sunday we believe that you have something for us, and so we pray that that would be made evident this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So we've been going through the book of James as a church, and we've titled the sermon series Get Real, because James has a great call to action for us to get real with our faith. Our faith is validated in our actions. There's something that happens when we step into relationship with Jesus that comes in and changes the very priorities and actions of who we are. And so we think that James has a really great message for us today, because right now, as we're still in the middle of this pandemic, of course, we, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think some of us might have been seeing the light for a long time, but it's still there. Um, vaccines are widely available, and the mask mandate for people who are fully vaccinated um, is not here anymore. And so it's definitely not over. We still have to be careful with what we do, but vac um, as vaccination rates go higher, infection rates are lower across the country, even here in Colorado. And so we're going through the series so that we can start thinking about what it looks like for us as a church and for you individually about what post-pandemic faith sharing and church life looks like. And James has a call to action for us, which sometimes we get uncomfortable with. But, but here's what's happened during the pandemic. And this has happened in my own life, too. I think we, we have fallen into the trap of ease and convenience. So what I mean by this is it's, it's easier to do something or to not do something. For me, back last spring, when I was teaching choir back in Heston, um, when the pandemic hit over spring break and everything got shut down, there were no more spring activities. School went online only. And um, I couldn't do any spring concerts. And we also have a huge stage production every spring that we do, but we couldn't do that. But I, I have to accept the fact that it's easier not to go through the stress of putting that production on. It's a huge amount of weight that's on all of our shoulders to get this thing ready to go, to make it happen. The payoff is always great, right? The payoff is amazing in the memories that we make and the bonding that happens between the students. But it was easier to not go through the stress of putting that on. 
Maybe you as a family have fallen into the trap of convenience that's not the best for you. Maybe you go out to eat as a family, or you used to, pre-pandemic, and you would um, make it a social event. You go to the restaurant, you put your phones down, you talk to each other, and you, you talk about your week, and you, you kind of re-get to know each other from the last time you did that. But then you can't go out to that restaurant, so you come home and you order food in, like Uber Eats is here to stay, that's for sure, but you order in, but then you watch a movie, or the phones come out, or you remember some work that you need to do, and you don't have that social gathering time that you used to have. These traps of ease and convenience are not what post-pandemic life should look like for us. And so James, we get uncomfortable with James a little bit because we feel like he, he talks about works. No, 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 faith, faith is about grace, and you're saved by your, your faith through grace in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul talks about. But Paul also talks about what your faith looks like. The first part of Paul's letters is about who you are in Christ. You are saved by grace. The second part is always about what that faith looks like. But all of James is about what your faith looks like. So that's why we get uncomfortable, but that's why we like to preach out of James right now. He puts it a bit more bluntly for us and, and, and convicts us at a, at a deeper level. So that's why we're going through James. We're not preaching law. We're not preaching works. Grace through faith is the foundation, but there's something that God has for us coming out of this pandemic. So James wants us to get real. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 2. I really do want you to actually open your Bibles. I'm going to read the whole passage. It's not going to be up here yet. And I'm reading out of the NIV. And James talks about, um, he talks about favoritism and how favoritism cannot be a part of our churches. So I'm going to read James chapter 2, 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So often when we come to a passage like this, I think sometimes we gloss over it and we think, oh yeah, favoritism, that's easy. Don't show it, check mark, move on. But at the root of favoritism is something that we are actually very, very quick to show. So think about what's going to happen here when church dismisses, when the final blessing is given and we're dismissed to go on. What's, what's the sanctuary in here going to look like? What's the lobby going to look like? What are, what's it going to look like out on the lawn? You see people talking to each other, right? Or maybe you have to take off and, and go do whatever you have this afternoon. But there's going to be people hanging around in pockets chatting with each other here. Because, well, and, and then what, what makeup are those groups? Are they the same or are they different? They're probably the same, right? You're not going to have someone who's, who's 20 talking with someone who's fresh into retirement unless they have something in common because it's a natural human desire to want to be with people who are like us, whether that's the same age or something in common, whether it's we're on the worship team or you're on kid duty, you're probably not going to go talk to someone who you don't have anything in common with. Another thing that would happen is someone might go talk to someone because they're better than them, or at least they perceive them as that, and then they can get you something. It's like sucking up to your boss at work so you can get a promotion or get a raise. Or, or being, um, I'm a teacher, so it feels weird to say this, but like the goody two-shoes for, for brown-nosing your teacher for the good grade. Right? We love those students, though, because they're great. Whatever. But the point is, there's a natural human tendency to want to be with people who are like us, or be associated with the cool kids. The popularity contest doesn't stop, it just changes forms as you get older. I don't know if you knew this, but a couple months ago, Forefront got broken into. Nobody was hurt, nothing was stolen. I'm thankful to Rebecca for being our eye in the sky, getting on that security cam. The police showed up very quickly and, and got the person who was in here. But I want to show you a picture, and I want you to decide who potentially would, is more likely to commit this crime. So look, it's going to show up here in a second. Who is more likely? There it is. You notice what's unique about it? It's the same dude wearing different clothes. But immediately when you saw this, you probably were like, oh yeah, that guy. Or maybe that, oh, shoot. It's the same guy. This shows our natural human tendency to look at people and make judgments, snap judgments based on how they look. And this is exactly what James is talking about in verse 1 when he says, My fellow brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. This is the root of favoritism. When you look at someone, favoritism, the Greek literally means to receive the sight, to receive the light bouncing off of them into your own eyes and you make a judgment about them immediately. And in this case, you favor one and despise the other. This cannot enter our church services because, verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So when these two different people walk in, one looking rich, one looking poor based on their clothes, we show favoritism when we favor the rich, the one who can get us stuff, and the one who looks like they're high in society, and we give them the honor of a seat. But the poor person, we say, nope, standing room at the back, 
or even worse, sit on the floor by my feet, which is the place of a servant, just based on their outward appearance. In the Roman uh, culture during the day, there was something that we called a client-patron system. Clients were often wealthy, well-to-do people with resources, with property, and they supported several clients who they would give food and shelter and wages to um, so that they could live their lives in in the Roman Empire. And the clients were supposed to give praise and honor and respect back to their patron so that the person would be well-respected in their community. Maybe get elected to the city council, maybe even elected as senator to the republic. And at any moment, the patron could dismiss the client and say, you're not being good enough for me, you're not giving me enough honor and respect, so I'm going to go find someone who does. And so there would be abuse that would start to happen in this patron-client system. And if this works its way into our churches, my friends, something is wrong when we pander to those who are rich in the eyes of the world but push away those who are poor. And as much as we like to think that we're not like Roman culture, this works its way into our society today because if we're honest, people with money make the world go around. I've heard a lot of stories of uh, Christian schools who have wealthy donators and wealthy benefactors and these people with money come in and say, if you teach this, or if you don't fire this person, then I'm not going to give to your school anymore. And whatever action they demand is not in the best interest of the school. I know this has happened many times in a lot of Christian schools. And this is the client-patron system showing up in what should be a grace and faith-filled institution in churches and schools but this makes its way into our society. This is favoritism, favoring one, despising another. James 1, 23 and 24 says this, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Church, how can we sing and hear and pray and read the very words of God that tells us how to treat each other and other people in the world, how can we read how God sees them and then go and do the opposite? Have you not discriminated among yourselves, this is verse 4, and become judges with evil thoughts? How can you be united with Christ who views everyone on the same playing field when you yourself don't do the same? James goes on and he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, in verse 5, get this through your thick skulls. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Aren't the kingdom of God the ones who the, the poor, the, weren't the poor the ones the kingdom of God is made for? But you have dishonored the poor. James likes to speak in proverbial language, and what I mean by that is he, he speaks in one-liners that are easy to memorize and sometimes easy to take out and stick on a coffee cup, right? Now, I, I don't like coffee cup verses because so many times they're taken out of context and you, someone who looks at that, oh, God, it's amazing. Well, yes, and, you know, there's more to that. So if I ever fill the pulpit one day continually, I'm going to have a series on coffee cup verses and, and the real meaning behind them. 
But James does this, and he speaks in, in short, quick one-liners, and he likes to take um, Beatitudes from the words of Jesus and slightly change them, but use them in his flow of thought here. And he uses the Beatitude uh, from Matthew 5.3, and then its counterpart in Luke 6.20. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. And then its uh, counterpart in Luke says, Just blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor. Different words, but the result is the same. So if you're poor in spirit, here's what that means. You recognize that spiritually you are in poverty. You have nothing to offer God in return for his grace and salvation. You cannot do anything. You cannot offer anything to God to make him accept you because you're spiritually bankrupt. You're worth nothing. But what the actions of Jesus, and this is the good news of the gospel, Jesus has come in and, and died in your place so that you become valuable. And now you have something in Jesus to exchange with God for your salvation. And so when you're spiritually impoverished, you allow Jesus to come into your life and you're completely dependent upon him for your salvation. On the other hand, if you're just, um, if you're just poor materially speaking, guess what? You are still completely dependent upon God for your day-to-day -day sustenance and your salvation. Whether you're spiritually poor or materially poor, the result should be the same, where you are completely dependent upon God for everything. And this is the very people for whom the kingdom of God is made. How in the world can you push them aside and favor the rich? And Paul, or, sorry, James pours heaping coals on their heads, and he says later on in verse 6, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? The rich are the ones who are sabotaging you, who are dishonoring the name of God out there in our community. Why, again, are you honoring them and not honoring those for whom the kingdom of God was made? So what James talks about next is he talks about love and the greatest commandment in Scripture. And we talk about love often in church. Sometimes it's kind of like, just love everybody, dude, and we're like hippies in a certain sense, right? And it's really hard to, to bring that down to earth and put tires on it and drive it. It's like, yeah, just love everybody. Well, what does that look like? Someone like me needs some concrete information, and James does that. So the greatest commandment, which he's going to talk about here in verse 9, comes from uh, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You can probably, if you've been in church um, as long as I have, you can probably recite this. And Jesus replies to a question. Um, the question is, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your and with all of your and with all of your there it is. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Say it with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So even though they're, they're different, it's like love God and love others, they're very much intertwined, right? Because if, if you don't love God well, then you can't show his love out into the world. And so they're very much related and interconnected. And so in verse 9, James, James or sorry, verse 8 James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So to understand this royal law found in Scripture, it's whiteboard time. I want us to think about 
um, the illustration of a Roman arch. So if you um, know anything about Rome or the, the old architecture, you might think about the Colosseum or the, uh, any Roman aqueducts. You can go ahead and show that picture, Sarah. And what you see is just arch after arch after arch stacked on top of arch after arch after arch. And these Roman arches were an amazing architectural feat at the time. They don't have any reinforcement or rebar in them. And the Pantheon is the largest freestanding concrete dome still in the world, and it was built 2,000 plus years ago. A really incredible feat of engineering without any reinforcement rebar in it. And so this arch... Um, can support a crazy amount of weight on it, but you can still walk under it and not be worried that it's going to fall down on you. And this was the feat of architecture of the Romans. So, in a Roman arch, when, you're, when you start to build it, hope everyone can see. Now, I went to four years of college to learn how to draw really good, and you're going to see that it, at work here. I'm going to make it bigger, actually. Is that a straight line? Hey! Okay, so when you come in here and you start to build your arch, you're going to start with some blocks or maybe just one large brick to, to make your support structure. This is already going to fall apart if it was actually a, an arch. <laughs> so anyway, you get to a certain point. You get to a certain point, now you're going to start building in your arch. But in order to do that, you have to build a support structure first underneath, and it would often be made out of wood. So imagine some two-by-fours, Maybe a six by six, because it's a big one. And this wooden structure right here would support the bricks you're going to start laying above in the arch. So there's our wooden support structure with our concrete blocks on the outside. So we're going to start laying our wedges up here. These two would probably stay put. But once you get to the next ones, without that wooden support structure, those bricks would, would collapse. They wouldn't stand there. What goes in next is called the keystone, because it is the key to the arch being able to stand on its own. So you stick in this keystone, and now any weight that's on the top is going to be spread evenly throughout the concrete block, uh, concrete block structure and, and go down and transfer the weight to the ground. So you can erase your wooden structure, and now you have a freestanding Roman arch. And it's all about that keystone. If that keystone was removed, it couldn't support anything. The entire thing would collapse. What James is doing is he's putting love as this keystone. If you do not have love, love of God, love of neighbor, your entire faith system comes crashing down. James equates favoritism with showing love. So he puts favoritism in here, verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So if you show favoritism, you are not loving your neighbor. The keystone is taken out and your entire system falls. James uses another illustration here in verse 11. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. So he equates adultery and murder with showing love to your neighbor. If you do not commit adultery, check, follow that law, but you do commit murder, uh-oh, you sin 
and you have become a lawbreaker. The entire thing crumbles and falls apart. But here's the amazing great news about Jesus. When we break this command, because all of us have, Jesus comes along and he helps rebuild our arch and he gives us chance after chance as long as we repent and continuously strive towards him, he will allow us to rebuild and try again. My friends, if we are going to fulfill this greatest commandment of loving your neighbor, we cannot show favoritism. In fact, we have to do the complete opposite, and we have to show the love of God equally, in equal measure, to everyone. So James concludes here in verse 12. He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That law that gives freedom, that's what we're set free to in Christ. That's who we are. That's that's beginning of every one of Paul's letters. But who we are in Christ, we're set free by grace through faith. And now we have to follow these things. But the thing is, we don't have to, but we get to. We're set free to not have to worry about that sin anymore. We're set free to live in the kingdom of God and follow the greatest commandment of loving our neighbor. And James takes another beatitude from Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But he takes that positive statement and flips it into a negative statement. Mercy will not be shown to those who have not, been sh- have not shown mercy. And he does that to allow the weight of breaking the greatest commandment to sit on us so that we can hopefully escape out of that weight and escape to Jesus as he helps us fix what we broke. James's message is that our faith is validated by how we act, by the inner transformation that happens when we accept Jesus and have the Holy Spirit come into our lives. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. My friends, if you're here this morning and you're hearing these words of God through James that I'm speaking to you now, and you're just hearing it and you're just listening to it, and this word doesn't transform you, you need to examine yourself and ask, God, what is it? What's holding me back? At some point, I'm going to share my testimony with you, and there was definitely something in my own life that's holding me back, and God did amazing work in me, and that's why we're here in Denver. That's why I'm in seminary training to become a pastor, because of this very message, the transformation that God can do for you. There is life, and there is freedom, because in God's economy, everyone is on equal footing. And we as believers are called to reach out to the poor and lift them up to their rightful place. And then, when appropriate and in love, bring those who think that they are rich in the eyes of the world and bring them down to their true place so that they can experience the same transformation that we have experienced. So at the root of favoritism, I think, is selfishness. Right? When we show favoritism to someone, when we want to hang out with the cool kids, when we want to be with the person who's like us, we're selfish in that we want to get something for ourselves. So church, why do we come here to Forefront? Why do we come or go to a life group? Do you have selfish motivations? 
Do you want to get your favorite donut? I know y'all don't like those King Supers donuts. We had some nice ones this morning. But why are you coming here to church? Do you want to hear your favorite song? Do you want to get to know the, the cool person who you perceive as cool? Or hopefully, if you're unselfish, do you want others to get your favorite donut? Do you want to make sure others are seated before you are? Do you want make, to make sure someone else is welcome? Are you reaching out and showing the love of God, or are you selfishly wanting to get something for yourself? I'll close with this story. There was a janitor. This janitor's name was Jim, and uh, Jim was well-liked in uh, the school that he was at. The the students loved him because he hung out with them at recess and uh, ate lunch with them. And if you're a teacher, you know that, especially middle school and elementary school, you know that schools cannot function without janitors, or else there would be uh, barf and glitter just everywhere. Right? <laughs> glitter is the worst, and yeah, I won't, won't talk about that other one much. But this janitor, Jim, was well-liked. The students liked him, the staff respected him, but, but Jim noticed that there was a student who was sitting over here, and, and let's call him Timmy, and Timmy was, was kind of pushed out, kind of bullied, ostracized, and, and this was because Timmy had autism. Now, if you don't know anything about autism, Autism is a really wide range of diagnoses where, where things are just happening with your brain. But the biggest thing that happens is that a student with autism does not recognize social cues and tone of voice and body language. So if you've had a bad day and you're, you're sulking and you're showing that in your body language, a student like Timmy with autism won't know how to interact with you and pat you on the back and say, hey, are you okay? What can I do for you? They're just going inter- to interact with you as normal. So in the adult world today, hopefully, we're, we're starting to learn what it looks like to interact with these people and, and the right jobs that they can, they can have to be successful in our society. But in middle school, you're just labeled as weird because you're different. You're not like everyone else. And so Timmy was pushed away. He was ostracized and bullied. And Jim decided, you know what? I need to show Timmy some love so that he can know he has a friend at his back every day. And so he reached out. He started to know Timmy uh, a little more. But before long, Timmy became the coolest kid in school because of the actions of the one janitor. You can probably think of other stories like that. The prom king king taking the, the girl with Down syndrome to prom. And we love these stories. But have you ever been the one who does that story? Have you ever been the one who doesn't do that story just for fame, but because it's showing the love of God to someone. So coming up here, we're going to, I'm going to pray and we're going to have some reflection time. We've started doing more songs after the sermon because it's really important for us to sit with what God has been speaking to us. And so I encourage you again to to be thoughtful and reflect, God, I, I ask that you would open my ears and eyes, so what did I just hear? Too often we just fly out of here and say, What's up next? Lunch? Afternoon nap? Whatever. Spend some time here in this space together with others and hear what God has to say to you. Let's pray.